Welcome to episode 53 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my sweaty co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, Chris, how are you both uh, dealing with the uh, summertime? Oh man, it's so hot here. It's like, this is our first week of triple digits, like every day of the week. So, uh, and of course our AC picked this week to kind of start going on the fritz. No. <laughs> so barely hanging in there, trying not to uh, self-immolate. <laughs> uh, it's been pretty hot at the shop. I'm, I've had, a, I have like two fans pointed at me at all times just to try to stay cool um, at the day job and at, you know, at the shop at the UMC. So, um, you know, simple stuff, drink lots of water. That's about it. Just staying alive, keep moving. Yeah. It's not a uh, climate controlled, is it? Uh, the, no, the, the day job, it's not, it's, the building is kind of big. Uh, and then the other shop is not climate controlled either. So yeah. So what's, What's hot for California? Were you guys in the nineties or? For me, well, <laughs> for me, <laughs> uh, yeah, like nineties is hot. I know everyone's gonna groan, um, but uh, yeah, nineties, ninety-five ish. I mean, that's what y'all are seeing. That's the weather you're seeing this week, kind of hot. Like yeah, that. Chris is a little more inland, so he gets a couple degrees hotter uh, weather uh, than I do. But um, I mean, I'm seeing like high eighties, nineties. Um, but the other thing is I live without air conditioning, so there's that. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, so when I moved in with my aunt, um, when I came over to California, uh, she was like, oh yeah, we don't have air conditioning, by the way, and I was like, uh, oh, okay, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, and so, uh, one of my projects this year, because I knew that, um, the, the floor fan that we have is really terribly loud, is I took a, a PC case fan, uh, so a 140 millimeter um, Noctua, so a pretty quiet fan. Mm-hmm. I hooked it up to a 12 volt PWM speed controller and I plugged that into a 12 volt power supply. So I've got like what's probably the quietest desk fan you could ever create. <laughs> and so I've got that running right now and uh, I've had it running for the past couple of podcasts and no one's complained. Uh, my MacBook is actually louder than this fan, so uh, that's what's keeping me alive right now. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. It's pretty, little muffin fan. It's pretty cool. You don't have like a a window to dump one of those cheap uh, wall ACs in. I mean, not for I podcast could, recording. Could, but I mean, it would probably be louder than uh, like you'd hear it on the podcast. Right, right, yeah. not not during the podcast, but yeah. So I'm kind of regretting not uh, just bringing like a, a big cup of like ice water in here with me so I've, I've only got a little bit of room temperature water to tide me over so if I start like uh, going delirious it's probably heat stroke <laughs> oh man and it's I think it's only going to get pretty much hotter here um, right I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to go into the triple digits pretty soon for us as well I went to go grease the Neo and like Daytron ships the initial you know like a, a grease gun and a grease cartridge with the machine it's like some Rex Roth grease and i was keeping it in the storage shed the gun and everything and uh went to go get it and it's like dripping oil (laughs) it's like it's so hot outside like the grease is breaking down so it's not that hot in the garage fortunately where the machine is but uh it's like now i have to keep the grease inside (laughs) inside the house 
That's crazy. That's, uh, it's kind of concerning. That's crazy. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, there's people that run, you know, most machine shops, just a lot of them are running at ambient, whatever the outside temperature is pretty much what it is inside, right? So mm-hmm. kind of wonder about the lubrication on the machines breaking down. But I guess they're actually, the machines are probably hotter anyway than the ambient. Yeah, I think the bigger concern is just losing tolerance at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, I have the Tremos uh, height gauge now, and so I can do, like, very pretty accurate measurements with that and i definitely can see the effect of temperature especially on aluminum parts like when i bring them in from the garage the garage is pretty warm like probably the hottest it's been when i'm machining is almost like 90 91 towards the end of the day and uh so if i bring a part in you know it's still kind of warm you know it's just like feels like body temperature right i bring it in check it and then like let it sit in inside right inside the air-conditioned house for an hour and come check it again it's like i can see the difference in the measurements so it's kind of interesting how much thermal uh environment impacts that kind of you know dimensional changes and especially in like aluminum yeah you remember that time i was i was making that self-centering vice for the rocket nc and i had that story about i was holding it in my hand and it wouldn't it fit right off the machine and then a week later it didn't fit anymore and then I ran it under some hot water and then it slid back in. And then that was my first lesson uh, with how bad aluminum holds its uh, integrity under temperature. Yeah, so my dream now is like, I'm gonna invest, do some more like work in the garage and uh, you know, I'd like to be able to keep it in, you know, 68 would be ideal, but probably like 72, 73, like all the time year round and see kind of if, how that impacts my accuracy. I, I kind of looked into what people do. It's doesn't. It's not a lot. I mean, the insulation on the roof, uh, good padding, and then for the garage doors, I spoke to some people at work who've done it, and they said it doesn't take a lot of padding. And then this aluminum sheet. It's not an aluminum sheet, but it's like a metal sheet that kind of help insulates. And you put that over the uh, insulation sheet that you would shove between. Well, it depends what type of garage you have, but um, I have like. Uh, the one that rolls up so I can stuff these little I can stuff these little blocks of insulation and then cover the whole thing with the the metal sheet and then uh, if you have some kind of like removable uh, bars for the uh, for the not terrible explainers uh, f- to cover the gaps between the garage and the the garage door and the garage wall um, then that actually will help quite a bit and then as long as your ac is powerful enough to keep the room cool um you know for a couple hundred bucks and some elbow grease in a weekend you can probably do a decent job i, I don't know how crazy you want to get but like you know obviously the more in depth you want to do the more money and time it's going to cost but for just some simple isolation and some padding and some coating and stuff like you can get a garage pretty cool yeah my biggest hesitation on insulating the garage right now is i think like is all the heat sources I have inside the garage, the compressor, the, the dryer, and the Neo, or actually more the vacuum pump. Um, when that's running, they all put out quite a bit of heat. It's like, I don't know if it would get worse in there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, the lack of insulation might actually be helping me right now. But That sucks that you can't route it outside and like lock it down or something. Because on the side of my house, I have like this little uh, shed thing and I can run the compressor from there and lock it up 
and basically run a line inside, so moving it outside of the, the garage. I don't know if you have a way to do that or not, but. Well, I think what I'm gonna do is, is when I do the, like the next investment and in kind of renovation in there is just have a little closet for the compressor, like for all the hot stuff. Um, I don't know about the vacuum. I don't, I gotta talk to Daytron about how far I can run the vacuum line, how much I'd lose. Um, but at least the compressor and the, uh, the dryer that sits next to it, I can kind of wall those off and they have they already have vent to the outside where they're kind of sitting right now there's like a vent and i can always expand that put a fan on it make sure they're getting fresh air so they don't get too hot hmm. and you know, who knows you know maybe even insulate it um like kind of soundproof that closet and because they don't they don't take up a lot of space it'd be pretty easy to wall them up they're like having a water heater in your garage as far as like how much space they take up especially if i, I double stack them yeah, so that's probably what I would do. Wall those off. I think I would see a big impact in like temperature control in there. Like exhaust those outside. So enough about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it does kind of discourage you, you know, when it's hot out there. Yeah, I mean, I look at the garage and I want to do some work on the bikes and turn on the machine and stuff, and I'm just like, oh, it's it's way too hot to be in there right now. Yeah. So yeah. I was, uh, I just updated the firmware on my, um, or the, I guess the software image on the, the V250. I think you did the same Winston, right? Didn't you just upgrade? Mm-hmm. They're up to yeah. 4.6.2. Yeah. Yep. So, uh. What improvements did they do? I haven't been keeping up to date. I think it was bug fixes more than anything okay. in the last few releases. They, um, I think for the V250 or maybe for both of them, uh, there's an optional, uh, m6 tool probe so when it sees that it'll touch off um there is some uh, performance improvement in the ui so previously i think i was on 4.2 um when you went to like hit the little arrow keys to bump up the the spindle speed or the feed rate um like you would wait for the command to go to the machine uh it would update there then it would push it back to the ui and just that back and forth was super slow so you'd have to like click it it'd increment five percent you'd wait like a couple seconds then you'd be able to click it again and um now it's you can actually step through your uh, uh feed rate and spindle speed overrides a lot faster almost to the point where it's like not annoying uh, there's still a little bit of lag because it's a, a remote uh, web interface but it's a lot better okay cool at least those are the the fixes that I was um, paying attention to. I'm sure there's some some small stuff under the hood. Okay. Yeah, I need, I need to do that. I haven't updated it for a while. Definitely worthwhile. Yeah, there were some fixes. I don't think it was in this release, but in the recent release for offsets. Because um, I actually I think I was having an issue. Like I thought it was my tool pro, but now I'm thinking like I can't remember what release it was. I was like way behind on that one because I. I couldn't update it because of the, um, I have like a pre-production V250 and it doesn't have the sensors. So like the, the latest production code looks for the, like the temperature and pressure sensors, uh, make sure there's air going through the coolant. I'm sorry, air going through the spindle and I don't have those sensors. So it always, like it would basically e-stop. Um, but pocket and C kind of gave me a, told me where to look in the code to kind of override that. Um, for me only, <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that on a production machine. But uh, but anyway, so now I can run the latest code, and I think a problem I was having will go away now. Um, like I, I thought it was my tool probe. Like sometimes you know, it would, 
basically the tool would just plow into the material right on the tool change and I couldn't figure out what was going on it was kind of random but I think there was a bug if I have to go back and look through their github stuff but I think there was a bug with the TLO not like not getting remembered between operations um, I think that's what was happening it's like it would have been a long time ago because like I was probably at least 12 releases behind when I first updated but ever since you know I updated um, I think the first update was like February and I haven't had the problem since so um, yeah I've been pretty happy I haven't used the machine much uh, but I will be using it this week so that's kind of why I was getting updates applied yeah and uh, I saw you were also uh, doing some little 3d printed improvements to the machine yeah I uh, inspired by your <laughs> setting and some of your Instagram my, stuff uh, where you my had janky masking tape over all the uh, threaded <laughs> holes yeah so I, I mean I've had the same problem you're trying to solve with that with the chips getting packed in there and and I'm always kind of like switching out work holding so it's a pain I have to I don't have compressed air right so I have to kind of get in there with a, a little tool to go clean them out but um, yeah I figured I'd just make a little I was already printing something else I was like I'll oh, just print a shield but the other thing I didn't think about when I designed it, but um, you know, people have, I have not had too many problems with this, but I know people on the forums have had problems with chips getting packed between the rotary axis and the housing, right? If chips kind of get in there into the gear, the worm mm. gear, it's going to cause us some problems. Um, so anyway, so this kind of protects against that too. I made it a little oversized, so it covers the gap where the rotary table, the, you know, the OD of the rotary table is covered now protected by this thing so i'm going to put the um i mean it's pretty basic anyone could whip one of these up but i'll put the the solid model and the um stl up on thingiverse if anybody wants to just have a shortcut and download it and print it, it prints pretty quick it's three millimeters thick so print you know depending on your printer it prints pretty quick very basic yeah. i think you made an improvement on it right so you're setting up so you can still do the measurement yeah so the, uh, i I measure my stock sort of the old-fashioned way. I know you can uh, move your, your tool, your end mill, into position, rotate the A-axis 90 degrees so your stock is uh, pointing right at the tool and you can use that tool as a hard stop. Um, I only recently figured out how to um, set the, the tool length offset in the, um, the readout for your Z-axis because uh, previously it was like um, it didn't take into account the tool. Um, but I think if you go into the, the tooling menu um, you can there's a little menu or something that you can click so that it factors in the end mill length uh, and then you can jog to the the right um, position you want to act as a stop for your stock but I haven't been doing that I've actually just been sitting the stock in the ER40 collet using a, just a machinist ruler against the side of it um, and that gets me within like 20 30 thou which is good enough so that I can face it and then continue on my merry way. So that's been my way of setting up, and uh, I just added some little slots so that the uh, ruler could still reference the B table, because uh, otherwise it's completely covered and you'd have to account for the thickness of that cover that you put on top of it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, if it's 3D printed, I wouldn't try, like if I see and see it, and I could say it's exactly three millimeters, right? You could add that offset, but 3D printed, it's it's a, who knows? It's all random, <laughs> probably yeah. all around the, I mean, the perimeter of it. Even then, though, like if you do a facing up, it's probably fine, but it just it doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, 
Yeah, so you created some access holes so you can reach the bed with the caliper yeah, or whatever you're they're, using. They're just ruler. like one centimeter long slots. Because um, most of it, most of the ruler is actually hanging out over the, the collet area. Right. And I'm just sliding that um, metal ruler into one of the grooves in the ER-40 collet. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that a lot too. That's that's one of my most common setups with uh, when I'm using the ER-40. Just, I actually have... Um, Oh, what was I doing? Oh, when I, when I was doing the little um, aluminum the carriers for the gears, I had kind of like pre-cut stock that I was using, and I had made this little, it's basically a gauge, like a cylinder that fits over the, or it's almost like a pipe that fits over the uh, ER-40 collet. It was big enough to like actually, the OD or the ID was big enough to touch the table and not touch the collet wrench. And then I pushed the stock up. It was like a, work stop right for the material and then you take it off and you tighten up the collet but that's where the trick is because you can't tighten up that collet without the stock moving so um, it gets you in the ballpark yeah yeah you should just get it like almost tight enough where the bar you know you could just if you tap on the stock it would move and then i would use it and it'd, it'd be pretty accurate so but it, you know it only it makes sense if you're doing like the same part over and over and you have a uniform stock stick out that you want for you know 10 20 parts it's a pretty fast way to do it pretty error proof but yeah for prototyping the ruler it works pretty good yeah um there's a couple other small 3d printed improvements i want to make um i, I kind of want to do a heavier duty chip shield for the uh the um the linear rails just because like just getting aluminum chips on there still kind of weirds me out um but I think the fabric design might work better for the enclosure that I recently acquired. Uh, so I'll have to play around a little bit and uh, figure out what system I want to do. Have you posted uh, pictures of that yet? I mean, I know I've seen it. But... I, I have not. Um, there have been glimpses of it on Instagram through my stories, but I'm kind of waiting for the um, my collaborators to um, sort of be ready. So the backstory of this is... Um, these two kids from an organization called Stembassadors um, reached out to me. They're like, hey, we uh, make this enclosure. We'd love to adapt it for one of your machines. Um, Stembassadors, their backstory is they're um, trying to make digital fabrication accessible to like schools and um, kids for learning purposes. And one of the big things is like when you're in an educational environment, like everything has to be safer it's got to be a lot more convenient so you can wheel this into a classroom. So they sort of have like kind of a product where they will purchase um, CNC machines and build up an enclosure around it, put it on a mobile cart, and like you can just wheel this into a classroom. Um, so they sort of have an architecture that they've um, they've been trying to spin off into like their own little venture because um, they work with a, a sheet metal place um, for their first robotics team. So they have a lot of experience like just making these things themselves. And so when they reached out to me and they were like, hey, let's work on something. And I was like, hey, my pocket NC needs a home. Um, so we started working together on how to basically make the pocket NC enclosure of my dreams. And uh, at some point they will put out a video um, and I will put out a video about just me putting the finishing touches on this enclosure. but. Um, the big thing for me was I wanted lots and lots of windows um, just so I could film everything. 
so with that, with some LEDs inside, um, and with this being black, which I know a lot of uh, Pocket NC folks are a little jealous of, um, this should look pretty sexy on camera. So I'm looking forward to playing around with this a little more. Yeah, it looked like a really well-built enclosure. And uh, I'm curious to how well it does on, you, you have the V210, so it's still, you know, it's a little louder than the V250. I'm kind of curious how well that works for uh, sound deadening, especially for we, your video work. Yeah, we did some uh, test cuts in aluminum and um, with the machine in an enclosure, like you don't really need to wear hearing protection. Uh, so it was comparable to me putting it in my Shape Oco enclosure, which is, uh, it's totally fine to, to be around and um, not hate your life. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks great. And uh, I'm, I'm sure when you, you know, share pictures and stuff, everyone's going to be oogling over that thing. It looks, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but when this goes live, um, I just want to like emphasize that um, the, uh, the, the two kids who were doing this, um, Jalen was like the designer and Anshul, he's um, I think the younger of the two. Uh, those two were the ones that sort of spearheaded this effort. Um, I did none of the work in designing this. This was all them. So when you see this, um, all all props go to them for this uh, kick-ass enclosure. You're like the, you're the beta tester. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so they're... Uh, they use Onshape for designing all of this, and I was curious on how that would, uh, like, how they had adapted to that versus something like Fusion, and they have uh, they've taken to it like ducks to water. It works really well for them. It's it got all the parametric features they need. Um, they can uh, unfold the panels to do the uh, the laser cutting for the sheet metal. Uh, it's actually surprisingly full featured for everything they need to do to design these. And so they can take the the different uh, sidewall panels, the roof, the floor, and scale it up or down to fit just about anything. So uh, it should be interesting what they can do with this going forward, and if they can maybe make this um, usable for other people with different size machines, or if they can come out with like a product line of some sort, just like, hey, order an enclosure of any size. So we'll see. Um, but this is uh, sort of their first uh, venture into um, scaling up this architecture and, and trying something new. Uh, previously they were using, I think, X-carbs that they were giving to schools, which now they will no longer be able to since Inventables stopped selling the smaller machine, which is what a lot of the schools wanted. Uh, so they will have to adapt these enclosures for different machines going forward, assuming uh, kids ever get back to school. <laughs> That's cool. Just out, of, just out of curiosity, how old are these kids? Uh, one of them is, I think, about to be a freshman in college. The other one, I believe, is going to be a junior in high school. Wow, that's awesome. And, like, this enclosure, for being the very first prototype, is, like, better built, better designed than a lot of first-take prototypes I've seen anyone else do. Man, it looks, it looks amazing. No 8020 on it, right? It's all, all sheet metal? All sheet metal. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Nice. Uh, it's not quite eighth inch, but it's aluminum. All the edges are folded, so each panel, it's not just straight sheet metal, it's got like a little C fold on the edge. Um, and then there are PEM nuts um, built into one side and um, bolts in the other. 
so all these panels screw together, uh, and it's a really sturdy little uh, box. It's not quite airtight. Um, there will be some chips getting through if like they come in at the right angle, but I think for what I'm trying to do, it's it's perfect. Yeah, I I mean every enclosure I've had, you know, has its little like escape, <laughs> one of those places where chips get out, right? So unless it's designed for like flood coolant, yeah, yeah something will get out. Yeah, so blue painter's tape is your friend. You can make pretty good chip deflectors <laughs> with that stuff. So around the seams and stuff. Yeah, there's uh, there's one feature on the front of this that we uh, I talked about with uh, Jalen, and it's a chip deflector at the bottom edge of the front door. So one of the issues with my current Shape Oco enclosure is I just have basically uh, polycarbonate panels uh, that close up flush with the, the front of the floor. And so chips will start to accumulate there, and when you open the door, they all pour out. Um, so we've got a little chip deflector in the pocket and Z enclosure that pushes the chips away from the uh, the front opening. Are they have any plans to do ex uh, enclosures for other machines? Um, potentially. I mean, it's kind of the summertime, and um, I think they're they're playing around with that idea. Um, we'll see how it goes because um, I think they need to spin off from the nonprofit side to actually be able to to do this right. Um, otherwise it's just like they can build them as schools request them but if they want to open up like general orders you kind of need uh, a separate entity um, we'll see how that goes though I mean this is this is kind of a young entrepreneurship at its finest so they've it's gonna be a learning experience for everyone involved so speaking of the pocket and see you've been putting a lot of hours on your machine lately right uh, I have and a lot of unattended hours I know um, which uh, uh, Michelle over at Pocket NC is uh, kind of hesitant about, but I've got a recipe to machine my SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule, the, the miniature models, uh, really well. Um, I shave like an hour off the machining time just from optimizing all my toolpaths, and um, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Um, the consistency of the parts is shockingly good. I had some issues in the first um, prototypes where I was doing a rotary finishing toolpath, um, just with the end mill moving up and down around the part, and I would occasionally lose steps in Z so that the start of the toolpath didn't line up with the end of the toolpath when it wrapped around. Um, so just I was a little more cautious about um, feed optimization, about leaving less stock to leave right before my final finishing toolpath, and um, now like I ran through like. 10 capsules and all of them were uh, you couldn't feel the seam where the toolpath started and met up with the end of it um, you yeah. could see a little bit of an artifact because um, you can't really hold like mirror surface finishes on these like the the end mill sort of burnishes or rubs a little differently at the end of the toolpath than the beginning um, but the there's no like physical raised lip um, from lost steps yeah. uh, so overall like I was just Loading stock, load a tool, cycle start, come back in an hour, change tools, continue the next uh, part of the toolpath. Um, and it was a fun experiment just to see what these machines can do when you run them for like 8 to 10 hours a day. Yeah, and the, the parts look great. Were you doing any uh, hand polishing on those after or was that finished? Mm, I, I thought about it, um, but I felt that um, if you did any sort of hand finishing, it would sort of take away from the fact that 
these are CNC machined, and I kind of want to just double down on that aspect of it. Uh, I think there's also some like really tiny divots in the part where like the thrusters are and uh, small gaps where you really couldn't polish it out well. So I think if anything, uh, maybe a B blast finish would be uh, the go-to way to finish these. Um, I have a, a, a couple uh, scratch and dent capsules that I might test that out on, but for the most part, I intend on shipping these out um, just as is raw machined finish. Yeah, so the the pictures I saw, those were right off the machine. They look great. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking you'd polish them because of how well they look. You could probably get them to look really great on a buffing wheel, but um, it's I'll leave that up to the uh, the recipient if they want to do that or not. Uh, I see you were also working on a, a fun little part as well. You were taking your uh, lanyard beads uh, from the five axis and moving it to a fourth axis. How's that process gone? So yeah, I, I actually changed the model a little bit to work better on fourth axis. The only the only part or the only feature that really need needed five axis was the uh, there's like an annular ring of holes that I was drilling into uh, kind of a fat chamfer and I was coming in normal to the surface so it's like it's at a you know 45 degree chamfer and i was drilling straight into the face of the chamfer you know, it's easy to do on the v250 and it looks great I like i kind of like that design and i liked it because it, like you couldn't really make it unless you had a five axis but um but it turns out like i changed it to on the to basically that's like a second op now to put the holes in on the neo yeah, so i do that i machine the whole bead on the fourth axis and then come back and take care of the the ends and soft jaws and the vise, you know, three axis setup. Um, so now I'm actually uh, making those holes like going straight down the long axis of the bead. And it looks almost the same. Um, yeah, they're, little, they're not as round now, right? They're kind of more elongated holes. Uh, I can't remember, like it looks like, um, you know, those like rocket pods on, on like a helicopter gunship kind of looks like those that look okay. I like it yeah yeah so actually I like the new design uh, I haven't shown it yet because I'm still I haven't still got I haven't made one that's like perfect yet so it's still kind <laughs> of uh, prototyping it but um, I mean I've been working in titanium on these on the neo which is slow <laughs> you know relative to aluminum or brass so I'm getting ready to switch back over to brass and see if I can uh, knock a few out and then I'll get back I'll go back to titanium and um, kind of once I have a good Basically, once I'm done with the shape and I'm happy with it, um, I should be prototyping in brass, not <laughs> titanium. That's my point, right? It's too slow. Um, the turnaround is too slow to get the, the kind of experiments I want done. So, or maybe I'll just, you know, probably just prototype in aluminum because I got a bunch of that aluminum bar around here. What well, surface speed make... are you running for the titanium? For titanium, I'm running, um, let me look here. So, for adaptive clearing, I think I was using I was using some of the melon coated tools I had. Yeah, I was using a one one inch uh, bull nose four flute at I think it was eleven thousand RPM. Yeah, eleven thousand RPM, five hundred and fifty millimeters per minute, which is like 0 0.0127 millimeter feet per tooth, and surface speed was one oh nine. 109 meters, like almost 110 meters, which is sorry for the Imperial folks out there. That's uh, 350. Yeah, which is pretty fast for titanium, right? 
Mm -hmm. little, are you, are you just doing this dry? Yes, with Air Blast. Okay. Oh, with Air Blast. Okay. Yeah. Like 350 like on the pocket and C is when I made those sparks. Yeah, I'm I was watching. Curious. Yeah, I was watching for it. I didn't see, and I was checking. Like I can pause the machine, and um, the spindle will stop. And I was going in there, and kind of, especially the first time, just touching the part, touching the tool. Nothing was getting like above ambient. Mm -hmm. So, but then I don't know if that's really valid because maybe it loses the heat really quick. Um, but like when I do stainless, I do notice heat building up like on the V250, I can, I'll notice heat building up in the material. This you know, gets noticeably warm. Mm -hmm. So, um, I didn't, I didn't notice, did not notice that with titanium. I know titanium doesn't pick up heat in the materials, you know, trying to, the tool picks up more, I think, but tool was pretty cool too. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. And I had a problem, like everything worked great, but every time I would bore like the center bore, um, and I had some other, I actually had another part I was testing surface finishes with. It wasn't a bead, it was a little bit bigger bar. Um, and everything was working good except for boring. And I was with that tool, right, because the four flute, it's not a lot of room for chip evacuation. So I was getting kind of some chip packing and, and titanium. And it's like game over for the tool. <laughs> so I went through a couple of tools on that. I, so that's the main part of the recipe I still need to work on is uh, boring holes without damaging the tool in titanium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, until I get that figured out, I'll, I'll stick with brass and um, maybe some aluminum bronze. Can you go slow enough on the, the Neo to actually do a proper drilling operation? I have not done any drilling. I mean, I know you can definitely drill on the Neo. Um, I've never drilled on the Neo, so that's kind of, it's on my list of recipes to start working on pretty soon. Actually, just got my first drill. I got a set of a 2.05 millimeter, which is the, that's the minor diameter for M2.5 threaded holes so okay. i'll be probably doing some of that pretty soon and that's a tiny drill so it's not really much of a challenge for the neo um i can't remember what the dan told me kind of what the biggest reasonable drill diameter is to run on the neo i, I want to say it was it's either one eighth or i don't think you can run six millimeters maybe maybe up to m6 i think that's probably a little big but there's not a lot of torque in that spindle it's not really going to turn a big drill well um, and interpolation works super fast on the Neo anyway. Like most of the time I don't miss, like I, I wouldn't even think to drill. I don't need to. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty quick just to interpolate. But yeah, like you said, for chip evacuation or where I really care about the whole diameter, <laughs> um, that might be that might be a good good recipe to have down. Um, yeah, the only other thing I've been working on was some, I uh, had a rush prototype job to get out this week. So I wasn't posting much on Instagram because of that. And probably this week I'll be um, back at doing some fun stuff. And then I have some work coming up probably maybe next week. I don't know how soon they're, uh, they'll be ready for me to start on that, but some uh, engraving work. First time to kind of do a commercial engraving job should be fun. Yeah, it was a lot parts <laughs> and they're not like i'm not making them raw i mean they're they're pre-anodized so you know i gotta be careful right i don't want to scrap somebody's parts so um and there's a lot of engraving on them <laughs> but it looks it's an interesting part and it should be uh the work holding is gonna be a challenge to do it efficiently so i kind of like this idea <laughs> and there's enough there's enough parts to make it worthwhile investing in a fixture mm -hmm. a custom fixture for it so 
Are Let's you see. planning to do like soft draws or vacuum or? Yeah, uh, so the, the way to do this particular part correctly is to hold as many as you can at once. Um, but they're, I don't want to give away too much because I, I don't have approval to talk about right, it right, or to yeah. show it yet. I think it's going to be okay, but uh, it's to say it, it requires engraving on multiple faces. Okay. Uh, and that, yeah, so depending on how you hold it, most, you know, at least one face will not be accessible. So you have to kind of turn it in the fixture and then go do that side. Um, so, and, and as many as you can do it once, right, to make it efficient. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It should be good. I was thinking you know, originally I was going to do it on the rotary, but it actually makes more sense to do it probably as uh, take advantage of the table area and just put as many as possible in a, in a, like a plate fixture that fits. Um, yeah, on vacuum and just, you know, I'd have to turn, turn the parts frequently, but is, they're easy to index. You know, they're kind of, they're kind of roundish, but they have features that make it easy to like index it to bring up the face you want to engrave and mm. index it again manually. Right. If you have the right, yeah, the right fixture. I'm going to guess right now that Eddie's making a bunch of high-end Dungeons and Dragon uh, dice. Oh, sets. No, I, people ask me to make those all the time. I always say no, because uh, <laughs> you, you, that would be, even on a five axis, that's kind of tricky, right? Because there's always that one face that you can't access. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Unless like you can like hold it on the right corners, it. but that's you're you're basically doing. I think the only way to do it is like you said, hold it at the opposite ends where it's like the point, and you're doing kind of like a toothpick break off, you know, where you just oh, yeah. slowly machine it lower and lower and lower until the very end. Uh, it just easily breaks off, but there's still be some hand finishing, and I think that's the only way to do it. That that I because I remember that guy that you forwarded to me about the dice and. Um, I couldn't figure out how to do it either, and that was the only way I could think of. So these the prototyping parts I was working on this week, they were aluminum, and um, they were on the rotary axis. So this was like my first time to do kind of a bigger part and use tab, like a tab-off strategy, one and done. And so I was pretty happy with how that came out. I, I kind of have a new formula for, at least for that type of part, which starting from rectangular stock, held in the vise on the rotary axis, not in the chuck. So, uh, yeah, it's like on the, it seemed like on the V250, we were always striving to do like tiny little tabs and thin as possible. It's like, <laughs> you can actually do like a half millimeter tab if, you know, long. Like I do it, the, I was doing it the, almost the whole length of the part and then leaving it like half, I didn't get like any chatter or any kind of vibration. The finish was on the back, like where I was tabbing was still a little rough. Um, so I ended up, you know, I flipped it around the vise and finished that, poked it and finished it. I did kind of a progressive, like I did a wide tool, I took it down to like one millimeter and then a little bit narrower tool to take it down to like a smaller part of the tab, like a shorter, like a little bit, you know what I'm saying? It was like yeah. slotting with the eight millimeter and then, then doing the final depth on the tab with the four millimeter, which is, you know, it was... Um, yeah, less cutting pressure. Yeah, and also the the other thing that was nice about it is, um, so when you're breaking the tab off, it can hit the stock. You know, what I'm saying the part like as you're kind of flexing it, it can hit the stock and it'll mar the finish or it'll mm. scratch it. Yeah, so it gives you like lots of room to kind of break it off without hitting anything that'll scratch the the uh, blemish the part. So that's kind of neat. I would say if you're gonna machine the backside of it afterwards anyway. 
um, maybe leave a couple thou of stock to leave on that last slotting pass. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I had uh, ten thou. Uh, well, 0.1 millimeter extra stock. So the tab was actually the the tool that was doing the tabbing was yeah 0.1 millimeter away from the wall of the thing. And actually, I'd probably go a little further next time because there was still obviously some vibration going on. I couldn't hear it, but you can see it in the finish. Um, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the parts obviously vibrating and, and touching the tool a little bit. And I think at like 0.1 millimeter still, like even after I did the finishing, I could see where the tool was kissing the wall there during the tab. So I'd probably maybe go a little bit thicker. Yes. Yeah. I was doing that on the, uh, the capsules, but I was going for the, the Instagram tabs where you can yeah. like flick it. Um, and for those, like I have to apply a little bit of pressure um, on the part as it's approaching the, the last pass. So it's, it always bends away from the tool and it doesn't vibrate uh, the bottom into the tool. Yeah. But you don't yeah. really have that luxury on a enclosed machine that'll take off your fingers. Yeah, I did have the advantage that, you know, the way the part was hanging out, it was, you know, the gravity, actually gravity yeah, was probably pulling, pulling it away a little bit um, where the tool was cutting. Um, or at least if it was flexing at all, it was flexing the right way. So the gap is a little wider. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's not the case on the V250, right? Because it can actually bend towards the tool. Um, usually the, the part's vertical, right? And you're coming in from yep. the side. But yeah, I've had that. I've had that bite before. But although yeah, so now I, that I was you mention it, you could actually come up with a strategy where the tab is asymmetrically positioned. Um, you could machine it from one side, right. like eighty percent of the way through flip it around and then as you machine away to that tab it starts naturally bending away from the tool yeah it doesn't have to be in the center at all and actually that worked pretty good on the rotary too so i saw um uh, mark reese he works for daytron germany he has like the coolest video tab video where he actually you've probably seen it he's doing a part on the neo on the fourth and then he does the tabbing and then he rotates the uh the rotary axis 180 degrees and the part just flops down onto the table it's like <laughs> it's like my hero <laughs> it's a cause i'm cnc i look on instagram yeah i'm smart but um yeah i have yet to perfect that uh reese flop i'll figure that out someday but i think that's what he did i think it was asymmetric it may have been or he just got lucky i'm not sure but it's it pretty cool he was definitely flexing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like anyone with a German machine needs to flex every now and then. So a lesson learned, I think. So my, the first bead I finished, um, I did the road. It was one of the titanium ones. And I, I, put it, I, I posted about when I made the soft jobs a couple of weeks ago for the laying. And when I went to go use them, um, so I have two stations and or two pockets in the soft jaws ones for the stock like the starting stock it's where i just kind of prep the stock before i put it on the rotary and then the other stations for the op two work on the bead that's on the face um so the stock stuff worked fine and i actually because i probed the material in like I, I didn't when i made the soft jaw i didn't put any kind of uh locating feature on the soft jaw i figured i'd just use the the edges of the jaw like they're they're Kind of precision machined um i think <laughs> i probably lesson learned i would put a pocket in next time and, and probe that but um when i went to go do the second op on the bead 
I, there was really no place to probe the stock because it's, it's like buried in the soft gel. Just the very top of it sticks out. And it's like basically just a face. That's all that is exposed. Um, so I, I was probed the jaw instead. And the Lang soft jaw is actually, I have the solid model. Like everything's modeled in Fusion, the soft jaw, um, the part and everything in the, in the WCS. Uh, but the Lang soft jaw, it's not, it's rectangular, but there's actually a step at the bottom of it that kind of there's a can that locks the soft jaw onto the device truck and it sticks out like it's probably two or three millimeters um, just a little step at the base of the soft jaw but it's in the solid model and when i set my wcs <laughs> on the corner of that jaw it's like it's taking that into account does that make sense it's like i was off when i went to go drill the center bore and the bead it was it was not centered it was like off by that same amount um because I probed, like, it was just a stupid mistake, but it's like, um, yeah, so I, I'm going to put my own locating features in next time <laughs> in I make soft jaws. But that's actually the first time I've ever used soft jaws, so. They're nice, right? Yeah. <laughs> I like them. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's recoverable because I, I think my original probing strategy would have worked fine if I just had everything, like, if I had accounted for that step. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'll have to make new jaws, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's disappointing because I put a lot of work into that bead <laughs> <You know? laughs> by that point. It's like, oh, great. <laughs> but, I kind of uh, had a similar thing with the, uh, the wheel fixtures that I made. Um, that first one I made, it was more like a soft jaw style and it actually worked fine, but, uh, audio auditorily, like there was some chatter during some of the five axis cuts. And it kind of bothered me, and so I decided to like forget it. I, I ordered a one and a half inch thick plate of aluminum, and I just drilled four holes and put the rock lock pull studs inside, and that attached to the base, and kind of made like a super beefy, basically like a pallet table, and then uh, ended up, you know, going with that. And we made a bunch of wheels, and they they're turning out way better as far as the service finishes and everything else. Um, so, it, but it it took a lot for me to like let it go. Like I wanted to save it, you know, and, and I wanted to try to fix it. But in the end, I was like, there's there's a better way to do this. I just need to trash this. It's only like, you know, 20 bucks of aluminum and some time. Like it's not worth trying to make this bad uh, thing work. It's just better yeah. to just get the good thing to work right out the box and stuff. So the one you had a problem with, you, you were holding that. That was just one vice, right? Or did you have two vices? Uh, it was just one vice, and it was like a six-inch wide block. But the wheel's yeah. 12 inch diameter, so it hung out three inches on each side. Yeah, a lot of unsupported. Um, yeah, it, it actually looks fine. Like it, it didn't have, it wasn't that much of an issue. Um, it's just there was a little bit of chatter sound, but I didn't see a chatter in the roughing at least. Um, you know, the finishing took care of that, and it wasn't really a problem. But I just didn't like the fact that it was chattering, like you know, for tool life and everything. So yeah, um, and, and also so. right, and also I I like the idea of having these like removable big like plate fixtures and stuff because it's so easy to remove and put back in like we were swapping wheel fixtures and other fixtures back and forth like all day and it, it just kept working we didn't have to tweak any offsets or anything like that so um it gave me a lot so, of confidence in the repeatability of the base and stuff so where have you so what'd you end up doing removing the vice altogether and you're mounting the plate right into the uh i don't care what you call it, the base the, into the uh yeah the rock base. base plate yeah, yeah. just okay. just straight 
giant piece of aluminum plate with four uh, tap four holes for the pull studs, and it actually fits into the rock lock base. And then we tighten it down, and I just okay. machined the uh, the you know whatever the fixture onto the plate as while it's mounted onto the rock lock with the zero point okay. system. Yeah. So yeah, so everything worked out great, and it's been it's been doing pretty good. The only How issue that I'm the, um... Oh, uh, you probably can't say. Is it? No, no, this, this is fine. This is, this one's not a big deal. Um, so basically, like the same fixture will do both sides of the wheel, uh, top and bottom, so to speak. And so the uh, it has like a little ring cut out. It's got two dowel pins to locate because on the outer rim of the wheel there are these little holes that I could use to locate. And then when you flip the wheel, um, it's like a two-step wheel. Oh, this is gonna be really hard to explain. So imagine like a brake like a pancake with a hole in the middle and now you put another pancake on top of the center that's smaller so there's like a gap underneath right okay so when you flip that that part will actually sit into the fixture i did like a boolean cut to get that out and then i okay. expanded it like ten thou. so, so it's just a, it right and then i was able to thread four holes for the four more holes into the fixture and we bolt directly in using the same four holes that they use to the mount onto the motorcycle okay yeah, so sense. yeah and i bought like secure. these yeah, it's it's super secure. It's a little slow though, so I might think of making like a a, a quick kind of one bolt thing to, to press instead of four bolts. Um, you know, instead of the guy having to un, like tighten and loosen four bolts every time, yeah. I'm just gonna make a, a circular disc plate that sits inside, fits in the four holes, and one bolt in the center. So it's like a, a much quicker release yeah. and install. Um, yeah, no, it, it worked out a better. The only issue I'm having now is when it's facing up, there's unsupported basically on in the middle part, in the middle section where it's raised. And that's where I'm getting a majority of my, I guess, for me, surface finish issues. But to everyone else, it looks fine. So my next step is going to be to make some sort of um, uh, like a removable support disc on the inside for when you're doing the top side of these wheels that easily is removable for when it flips down, it doesn't need it anymore. So uh, that, that's kind of my next uh, thing that I'll be doing. But yeah, no, it's been it's been good. And I really like it. And I think Saunders did something similar recently where, you know, this is opening my eyes a little bit about, I should just have a bunch of these plates in stock and ready to go basically with the holes tapped. And at a moment's notice, I can just, you know, we got a new product, boom, put this thing on, uh, engrave it so it's you know to the part number and now it's forever shelved for that fixture and stuff so it's it's been cool you don't have to keep buying these vices and make soft jaws for everything yeah yeah i think that's the way to go um, especially if it's production parts it's like invest in the mm -hmm. fixture and yeah. get it right it might take you two or three iterations but um it becomes very reliable yeah and then i worked on this other part like my friend called me he's like hey i got this emergency part thing this customer is like yelling at me we need to do something for his sprinter van. I guess they were making him custom sprinter shelves to install for some kind of like special niche thing. So it's actually a very simple part. It's like a one inch uh, square with some, you know, simple bores and then threaded on multiple sides. Um, so I did the old pocket and seat trick of getting a six, uh, five inch bar, throwing it into the center of the vise. And then I was able to get two parts out of it. We didn't have a slit saw, so I couldn't, you know, slid it i just had to do it the way we used to do in the pocket and see which is like the way you did on the rotary uh take your end mill and just go back and forth the contour until it cuts off but we were able to basically do all the machining it needed and then basically finish it and cut one off and then go down and machine it some more i got 
uncomfortably close to the vice though as i got to that second one <clears throat> i think at one point i i yelled because i thought i hit the vice but i i paused the machine and i checked i could get uh the feeler gauge the biggest or the smallest one i could fit in there was a 15 thou gap between the vice and the side of the collet so i was like right there at the uh, about the rub and stuff so uh, at that moment i wish i had cam plate but uh, everything else worked pretty fine and in, in all retrospect, I had CAD and modeled all this in the machine, and it did look really close in the simulation, but it, I felt like, oh, it should be fine. So it, it did work out pretty close to what I expected, but it was just uncomfortable to watch. Oh, yes. Okay, so we, we were making this, these little sprinter shelf bracket things that would move so the shelf could, like, uh, basically retract out and fold back in and stuff. It's really cool. Like they uh they bought a new like die press and a press break so we were actually bending sheet metal we were welding it and then we put the brackets together and then i machined like 26 of them in an evening and then we, we actually were able to bang this out in one night um and it was it was really fun because that's like it actually made me realize how much i enjoy rapid prototyping like he sent me the file at like 2 30 as i got off of work and then I had the picture on my phone and I was thinking about it as I was driving to the shop. And then when I got there, was able to get the part on there within like 40 minutes and start banging them out and stuff. Only because I've had experience with the pocket and see like, you know, lining something up and making multiple parts and stuff like that. If I didn't have that experience, it probably would have taken me longer too. Because there's a right and a left. It's not just one part over and over. So I was able to do a right and left out of one single block, uh, which made it really easy. And then um, yeah, once I proofed it, I was able to leave and go help them with the welding and, and the sheet bending and stuff like that. So it was a fun night and um, really, uh, really made me remember that I do really enjoy like this high stress, like rapid prototyping environment. Like it, it, yes, it's stressful and yes, it's like a lot of headache, but man, I feel the most creative and the most, uh, I guess, happy when I'm doing it, especially when I'm able to succeed in like whatever it is that we're doing to execute properly. So um, at the end of the night, we all had beers and sat around and it was a, it was a good feeling. And I, I kind of forgot what that felt like. So that was good. I can, I can sort of relate, but I can't talk about it. Um, the, the past couple of weeks have been uh, just me grinding away on uh, Nomad 3 prototyping, but like every day it's like a new challenge and it's, it's just, pedal to the metal until you finish this thing but it is super fulfilling to just go into work and and like as soon as you get there you're problem solving so mm -hmm. I, I can relate to that feeling yeah i guess it it's like a, I guess it feels good to be the hero so to speak like you know like to be the guy that people call upon when there's an issue or they need help and stuff um so if i guess it just feels nice i, I hope it doesn't come off as being ego or anything like that it's just it just feels good to be able to help people i guess is the better way to phrase it and it's it's just good to be able to to dive into a process and to, to start troubleshooting and, and start using all these skills that you have and um, like that's it, it kind of feels fun to be like um, like the operating room surgeon or something when someone comes in a problem happens like you are there and you're kind of just throwing everything you have at this it's it's really um, satisfying I guess mm -hmm. yeah definitely. So. How do you feel? Uh, how do you feel like? Because you you just went from your day job to doing even more machining. How are you like, like stress wise, like capacity wise, like 
how much more stuff do you think you can do or are you at the limit um you know i i don't know this is the question i've been asking myself the last month or so because you know my i start my work at four or at five so i wake up like at 3 30 in the morning sometimes i don't get home until like 10 30 11 um i try to alternate between like four hours of sleep and six hours of sleep to keep going it for me like I've been doing this for a while, right? Even when I was doing the nursing and stuff, like working there in the day and then working in the evening. So far, it still feels okay, but I, I think, I don't know, it's because I'm just getting old, but there are days when I'm just like, I'm really tired and my brain is not functioning at higher capacity. So when I, I actually reached that point, like about two, three months ago, and I realized I needed to do something different. And so whether that was exercise or dieting or whatever, I ended up doing uh, not time-restricted feeding, which is kind of like intermittent fasting. So I'm actually eating only one meal a day and I'm eating between 4.30 and 8.30 p.m. And the first week was kind of difficult. Like I was hungry and I had headaches and, and all this stuff. But it's I've been doing this for about three months now and I actually feel more energetic. Um, I feel way healthier. Um, I realized I, I actually don't need as much sleep as I did before. Um, it's strange, right? You would think that eating less would make you unhealthy, but I actually feel better. Um, my allergies kind of went away and stuff. It's just weird, like all these like positive things. And this is all the stuff that I, when I researched, like what I could do about, you know, my, my diet and my environment and my, my physical stuff of life to improve, to get more energy. This one kind of popped out to me uh, for what I researched and it seems to be working for me. And that's how I was able to kind of revitalize. Otherwise, I think two months ago, I would have been pretty burned out because my energy levels and my body wasn't keeping up with what my mind wanted to do. And this intermittent fasting helped me kind of get through that. And now I can, I don't know, man, sometimes I'm up for like 23 hours, like from four, I think last uh, last week I was up at four, 3.30 and I, I didn't sleep until 3.30 a.m you know, the following day and I felt fine. I only ate once a day and I'm drinking a ton of water and everything and, every, and I'm eating my caloric intake for that meal. But um, it's been crazy. Like it's been working. I don't know, I, I'm not suggesting this to anybody. This is just personal research and, and doctors that I've talked to, uh, it seems to be okay. And I am getting blood tests and checking things out, um, you know, for my old work and stuff like that. So I'm, as far as paper wise and blood tests, I'm healthy and I feel great. I have the energy that I needed and I didn't have to, you know, spend an hour every day at the gym to get it. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about everything that's going on. But to answer your question, so far so good, but I definitely realized this is not sustainable. Like I'm working 70 plus hours a week sometimes. And then on weekends I'm doing anywhere between like, you know, 15 to 25 hours of programming CAD or design or whatever random things that I'm doing. So at one point I will have to start saying no start to you know relax and step back a little bit because I don't know my body probably won't be able to keep this up for long or at least you know but I, for me I'm gonna push until I reach that point and then I'll I know that okay then my time has come to kind of chill out a little bit but I don't know so far everything's been fun and it's been good and I enjoy doing what I'm doing so it doesn't feel like work it just feels like fun and time flies to be honest I don't feel those 20 hours it just kind of oh crap it's already two in the morning like okay I should probably head home soon so <laughs> Uh, that's how it's been like I'm not saying it's gonna be like that forever but that's how it's been and doing okay so far Very good. well I'm glad you're hanging in there that sounds pretty intense but uh, yeah at some point I feel like I'm gonna have to 
swing by and just reel you back a little bit. But <laughs> so long as you're uh, you're still alive, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's other things in life besides CNC. So um, actually, I just got a dog, and the dog isn't here yet. We we bought it, but. He was just born like, or she was just born like two weeks ago, so we won't be able to pick it up for another six weeks. Um, so that'll be fun. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've wanted a dog my whole life, but just never really had a time to get it. And now that we have like a place and a house and there's always somebody home and stuff now with our schedule, it'd be perfect. So we got a, a miniature American Shepherd, like a Blue Merle. So those are, those are pretty cool looking dogs. So your first official shop. I, I better see a lot of it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Go ahead. Oh no, no, that was it. Yeah, that's been what I've been up to. Did you guys uh, take advantage of the Fusion three hundred and sixty that sale? Like, I, I actually bit the bullet and signed up for the one year of the manufacturing extension. Because uh, I've come to rely on it <laughs> a little too much. Um, yeah, especially the finishing. I want to have the rotary toolpath kind of available when I need it. And uh, there's probing coming for, like, you know, Fusion already supports probing on the manufacturing extension for some machines. I think it's coming for uh, more machines soon, including Datron. So I'm hoping to do a basically get better uh, support and fusion for the in-process probing. Because right now I do it all through the control on Next, and it's still, I mean, it's super easy to do that, but I'd rather, like, it'd be a hands-off process. And also, like, I have to collect the data manually. Well, I could probably write a simple, I mean, a, a macro to collect it, but um, the fusion, right, it, it collects the data and pulls it back into fusion, so, which is where I want it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm hoping... Uh, I will get my money's worth out of that for this year. It's a pretty good deal. I think yeah, it was I, half off. Sorry, I meant to mention that. Seven fifty. It comes out. Yeah. Comes out to like sixty-two dollars and change or something per month. Yeah. Which it's it's less than a family cell phone bill, and for what you're getting capability-wise, it's hard to argue against it. Yeah, I used it during the free month, and like I got enough utility out of it that I thought, you know, I'll, it's worth investing in a year. And, uh, access and see, you know, I'll assess again this time next year before I renew, see if I've been using it, but um, I'm pretty sure I will be, so it's probably going to be a permanent part of my toolkit now. That's how they get you. <laughs> yeah, there's some good stuff coming in Fusion lately. We, we should catch up on that in episode. Uh, have you guys used the, like, the text on a path yet? I heard it's there. I haven't tried it. I've been, it's like one of the features I've been wanting for a long time. Um, that, In the sketching environment? Yeah, because like today to do that, you have to go fire up uh, what, like in a third. Inkscape or yeah. something or Illustrator. It's, like, it's painful, but I think they finally added support for doing that natively. Um, I don't know if it's in, well, if it's released yet. I just saw mention of it, so um, can't wait to use that. It's, it's about time because I'm pretty sure it's an inventor. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it'd be that hard to do, but um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of engraving with the um, half a millimeter ball. Like, I love that tool. I used to always engrave with the V, like a V point engraving tool, but um, mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty happy with doing it with the ball uh, and doing some like trace and the single, what they call it, the single stroke fonts. 
um, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of cool. I want to do more of it. <laughs> Gratuitous engraving, yeah. Yeah, I trust the ball nose uh, engravers more than the the like straight V carbide bits. I just I feel like the the tip holds up better because yeah. those um, like a sixty degree point can get pretty fragile. Yeah, the thing I mean the the thing I really notice is um, like whenever I engrave with the the V tip, I get kind of a raised burr around the engraving. Mm -hmm. I usually will come in like and face that off, but um, yeah, with the ball and it's like super smooth. When you know, right after the engraving, it's ready to go. So and yeah, I think the tool will hold up a lot longer too. Yeah, those uh those basic V bits. I think there's they're basically just a ground carbide shaft, right? So there's almost no rake angle. Right. All right, well, guys, I think I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, you guys got any last-minute things you want to add or save before we wrap up? Uh, I think we've got enough for this episode. We'll, we'll save a couple items for the, uh, the next episode. Okay. All right, well, sounds good. So. Good night, guys. Okay. All right, good time, good one. Later, guys.